Hello, hello everyone. It's Brit Stone, the Petite Polymath. And tonight we're going to talk about Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumetz. Hello everyone. I hope that you're doing okay. If you are in the Tennessee area, we are apparently getting some snow later this weekend, which should be pretty exciting. I went to the grocery store today and um, it was very, very empty in anticipation of the fact that we were going to get potentially some snow. So uh, anyway, it has been a little bit. I have been organizing my life, which I always say is why I'm not reading things fast enough to then talk about them on the podcast or I abandoned ship or something. But this time, uh, the book that I read, which is nonfiction, but just too important to um, not talk about, <clears throat> was actually prompted by a friend who lives here in town. We had um, gone to the same church when I was in medical school and then I moved away. And then the priest of that church tragically died um, a few months ago. And we were, we were together again for, you know, the funeral services for him. And actually, he had mentioned this book. He was a very avid social media user, Facebook and Twitter. And, uh, and so he'd recommended this book. <clears throat> and... I had kind of filed that away, and then my friend told me she had read this book in another book and that it had really kind of shooken up her, her view of American evangelical Christianity. And so the whole title is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. I'm sure you can um, imagine that it probably has had a very polarizing effect um, in the public sphere. Um, if there's a group of people that do not like being criticized, I would say Christians would be a really good group of, of, of people who don't take well to criticism, um, whether it is from the outside, because who are you to tell me about what I say I believe, um, or whether it is from the inside, speaking out in a way where everyone can hear, <clears throat> because you know, uh, you should not um, blast your dysfunctional family in front of strangers, right? Um, but, you know, I think that when you have an obsession with being in the public sphere, um, it's only right that people then call you out in the public sphere as well. So um, if you aren't someone who cares at all about religion, then I'd say skip this podcast. But if you're someone who grew up in the church, um, if you're someone who is still professing faith um, or is disillusioned, this might be a book for you. And I would even say if you don't care about religion, it's maybe a good framework for understanding the way that religion, particularly Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, has shaped the politic of the United States. Um, so I'll, I'll delve into some personal stuff here, and then I'll pan out, and then I'll go back to how the personal and the book overlap. So I grew up, um, I'm black, I'm Southern, um, but I'm also half Bahamian, so my mother is not from the United States. 
Um, and that's actually a relatively important thing. And being black and a Christian, also important, because um, black American Christianity is a little bit different. Um, I'd say maybe evangelicalism has its quote-unquote token black people in it, um, but I would not say that black American Christianity and, and evangelical Christianity necessarily in America are two of the same things because they're not. Um, while there is, you know, some latent misogyny, uh, just because misogyny is a thing because it's all about power, right? And power dynamics. Um, it looks a little different in black American uh, traditions for the mere fact that a large portion of what keeps the church afloat in the black American tradition are black women. Um, so because of that, some of this like super, super obsessive purity culture and like, you know, upholding of, of weird patriarchy, um, while it's there in some strains and there have been abuses and just like anywhere else, it's not, in the same ways um, that I'd say the white evangelical churches are, um, even though it's present. And I just want to make sure I acknowledge that. Uh, in the same way, white evangelicals didn't do a really good job of civil rights, and historically black Christianity has a, um, a, uh, a bend of kind of... Um, I'm blanking on the term right now, and it's a perfect term, and it's going to irritate me that I can't remember it. But at any rate, liberation, liberation gospel, liberation theology, that's what I was looking for, is at the root, because, you know, slaves, and Jim Crow, and, you know, segregation, and political power that has been wielded against black bodies in this country. Therefore, um, black Christians are going to come at the gospel from a, different, a very different perspective than white evangelicals who want to hold on to the power that they had and that they used as saying that they were superior. So you see now how these two things aren't completely all together. And since Sunday's still probably the most segregated day of the week, we have a long way to go with the church reflecting what the actual body of Christ is supposed to be. So, so yeah, so I grew up black Christian. I grew up black Christian in the South black Christian in the South with a Caribbean mother and a charismatic tradition that was segregated by ethnicity um, as a, when I was a child. Um, we integrated our small churches in the state of Mississippi when I was in high school, and that was not across the board. That was just in our little area of Northeast Mississippi. That was not without pushback from both black and white people, and I'd venture to say some of that had to do with, like, just with money and, and who was going to have the title of pastor more than even, I would say, at least in the black end, more than I would say for race. Um, and I'd say racism and power, because I think the two are so interconnected, had a lot to do with the white people who weren't okay with this, right? Also, God forbid your kids grow up together because then someone's going to want to date someone and someone's going to want to marry someone. And I mean, my, my first boyfriend was in my youth group, um, and, uh, and I'll leave that there. <laughs> um, and he wasn't black. Uh, so that was, that's an interesting thing, right? Because everyone's always afraid 
of, um, of integration when it comes to like romantic integration amongst their children. Um, so that's how I grew up. My mother grew up in a tradition. Um, she was not a Christian growing up, but her country had a very, has a very legalistic, judgmental view of what the church is supposed to look like. So Christians, you know, don't do a whole bunch of things, which makes it sound super boring and not very appealing. Um, and so people who are even unchurched have a view of what a Christian is supposed to be. And that's probably like a woman who doesn't wear sleeveless and doesn't paint her nails red and nobody drinks and nobody swears and nobody listens to music that doesn't like, you know, explicitly say Jesus's name 50 million times in it. And, um, you know, you're not actually supposed to really have any fun. You're just supposed to read the Bible all the time and pray all the time and then tell people how they need to come to faith or they're going to go to hell. That's kind of, you know, loosely um, the tradition from the way I can kind of get it from my unchurched family um, where my mom grew up. Uh, and then my dad came to faith watching a Billy Graham crusade as a teenager. Um, and his mom befriended a woman who had come to faith in this charismatic kind of borderline Pentecostal movement, although she had grown up or at least had been going to a Baptist church with my grandpa and with her children before this. And this holiness church then became the way, the way to be a Christian, okay? I'd say there is a borderline cultish mentality of my denomination um, growing up. And uh, there were a lot of things I couldn't do growing up. So my parents were very zealous um, and, you know, I'm almost 40, and when my parents were almost 40, they had, you know, a child who was about to graduate high school, so um, I can imagine uh, now being there at, you know, the age they were when I was, you know, about to be 17 or 18, um, how diligent they were to do this parenting thing correctly. I will say um, I am very thankful for the integrity of my parents. My brother and I would both attest to this. I think that is the main reason that we did not have to deconstruct our faith like a lot of people we know. Um, and I also am very thankful for the integrity of the elders and the community that I was a small child in. Um, not so impressed by the people I met when I got older, but and that's just in growing up, not, you know, when I left home. Uh, but the, a lot of the members of the church that I was a small child in, regardless of the rules and regulations, um, regardless of maybe the overarching view of what the church was, these people lived what they preached. And the consistency meant there was no hypocrisy. And that is huge because the story of Jesus and John Wayne is just rife with hypocrisy, lack of transparency, ugly, ugly, ugliness of human nature. So to segue back to the, to the book, the idea is that, you know, America has a way of presenting itself, depending on what books you're reading when you're learning history, that it's a Christian nation and we're really good at framing our history uh, in these very um, skewed ways that don't give a big picture, that don't leave room for moral ambiguity. 
um, that lack in a multifaceted perspective of the fact that history is a dynamic story with multiple players and the people who win are the people who dictate the story. Uh, on top of the fact that uh, we like to omit uh, timelines, like when did things like In God We Trust get added to our money? And when did we start saying One Nation Under God in our um, Pledge of the Allegiance? And, you know, men are complicated and they can do both good and bad things. They can own slaves. Um, and yet they can also say that we want to break away from tyranny if it's impacting me directly. Uh, and we don't do really good jobs with nuance and, and being honest about the complication of the actions that the people who we hold up on pedestals um, have lived out, right? Uh, on top of the fact that everything in this world gets deduced down to do you live in scarcity or in abundance. And when I say that, I mean, what resources are available to you? Are you scrounging because you're greedy or because you're afraid that there's not enough to go around? Or do you live with an open hand? And America has not been a place where people live with an open hand. I mean, I'd venture to say most countries probably don't operate that way. And so because of that, um, we have put ourselves on a pedestal. We have likened ourselves to, um, you know, the equivalent of what, you know, from a Christian perspective, we would say would be the chosen people of God. And, and America has read itself into the scripture as being a spiritual Israel um, in a way that is disingenuous and harmful. And that has been done in large part by the, I'd say, shadow power of the church as an institution um, wielding power to manipulate things. And how has that been done? By men, mainly, and the women who uphold the men in this, who have read themselves into scripture and misinterpreted and manipulated scripture to justify their own evil doing whether that is to dominate women, to dominate other men, to dominate ethnic groups that don't look like them, um, to dominate other cultures. However it looks, that's what it is. And that when it is convenient, uh, we will throw away the things that we say are important because the end justifies the means. That's how you get Donald Trump, right? The end justifies the means. That's how you're able to excuse, you know, a plethora of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, um, in the name of, uh, of something bigger or greater. You know, there's misinterpretation of scripture like it is just, it's just rife. You know, men comparing themselves to David with all their sexual conquest. Um, yet having lots to say about, you know, the LGBTQIA community or um, about abortion, right? You know, cherry-picking particular sins and then turning a blind eye to the sins that they then commit because, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's speaking with a double tongue, right? Like, Oh, well, we're sinful beings, and so we're not going to be right, and we're going to be flawed, and we're just going to ask for forgiveness. But at the same time, completely condemning to hell people 
who are just like honestly doing whatever it is that they feel is, in the words of, you know, modern day speak, their truth, right? So as I said from the beginning, it is a, um, a book about the ways that thirst for power have corrupted the nation. And it's been the institution that should be <clears throat> a light and an example to the nation that has perpetuated this. Now, you know, we could um, go round and round about how this began and when this started. And um, the author does a really great job of kind of drawing this line. Um, you know, she gives us Hollywood and John Wayne, how John Wayne was his example of kind of American masculinity, but a certain sort, right? Like white, heterosexual, working class masculinity, although he didn't even like even do any military service. Fascinating how, you know, this gets held up, especially because of the militarization of, of Christianity in the States um, and this like marriage of the military with Christianity and with patriotism. And yet these people who get held up, these examples um, of hero, half the time dodged their time to serve, which, you know, I find really interesting um, how these people that are supposed to be heroes have zero integrity. They lie. They can't stay married um, to one wife. <laughs> um, they have, you know, multiple accusations of inappropriate behavior um, leveraged against them. It's, it's a fascinating thing. And what is also interesting is the, the whitewashing of Jesus, right? So Jesus is, is kind of, you know, trotted out um, when it is convenient for people and made into the image that they want him to be. What is so interesting is that if you read a Bible, Jesus is clearly not white and could care less about power. And if anything, wants to topple power over. And the gospel when you read the Sermon on the Mount, is exactly counter to every evangelical desire that is pushed in an agenda in this country. It is exactly the opposite of that. Uh, and I know for myself, I have had to do a lot of reckoning with um, the things that I grew up with and what I actually believe and then when I read things for myself, you know, like the Bible and what Jesus says, I have to sit with the discomfort that even me on the days where I can be super brutally honest about the ways that I fall short, um, that I'm still not truly, fully emulating what that gospel message is supposed to look like in the way that my life looks. And I don't think that the evangelical movement, as it has been couched in this novel, or not this novel, in this book, um, has been self-reflective enough or humble enough to address the ways that it has fallen short. And I think if there's one thing people would appreciate, it is honesty 
when we have messed up. It is honesty when we have picked the wrong thing. And I would go back again to the personal. I was talking to my parents one holiday and I said to them, you know, the ability of you to learn, the ability of you to apologize, the ability of you to say, I used to think this and then I realized I was wrong. That is why I love Jesus today. That is why I haven't left my faith. Because even if my parents and I don't agree on every doctrinal thing in the world, at the very heart of what we do agree on is who Christ says he is and what he calls us to do in this world. And I think that somewhere the institutionalization of evangelicalness in America has missed Christ and who Christ is. And therefore, what is Christ's work in this world? And what is the work of the Holy Spirit in this world? And in this quest to try to control people and like hold on to some sort of relevance, they have, they have completely botched everything. And uh, I cannot remember the name of the young woman who um, testified against Nasser, but she, and you know, the creep that molested um, a host of young women um, on the Olympic gymnastics team. But she said something in her uh, testimony that stuck, to, stuck out to me, um, and it's true. And that is that the gospel does not need our protection, and it does not. Um, I think that what is important is to focus in on the radical call to love one's neighbor as ourselves. And if we did that correctly, oh my gosh, the America that this place could be. If the people who claimed any sort of faith actually lived the faith that they said they, they believed, this country would look very different, especially in our current climate, where I've listened to some crazy talk about, you know, the polarization of people with vaccinations now and like this weird, like apocalyptic, um, you know, uh, eschatological like craziness that people are using as fear mongering and then having the nerve to say the people who are vaccinated are the people who are afraid and just like this weird spiral of just insanity that's out there right now. And I just want to calm the noise and say yet again, to return to the first love, which should be the person the gospel is all about. And I promise that if people were able to reposition their eyes on him, things would look very differently. And so to that end, I think that Jesus and John Wayne is an excellent explanation for how America ended up where it was. And it's actually a very tragic story of how the church has allowed itself to be co-opted. Um, you know, well, how I'm encouraged is to say, and this is clearly a longer podcast than... than um, than others, 
is that uh, there is always the real church, and that's the capital C. That is not, you know, that's kind of, you know, covert and in amongst um, the, little, the little C church that does all its crazy, stupid stuff. That's not, that's not people that have true faith. And I'm reminded of like every parable that Jesus ever had about the wheat and the tares and the goats and the sheep and, you know, um, the pearl of great price, um, knowing that uh, there is good work being done, there are true believers, um, and just like anything else, often uh, the rot has to be excised for the thing that is left to be able to heal and remain. And I think that that's what's happening. I think there's just a reckoning of, you know, uh, many, many, many years of corruption and grossness that needs to be rooted out. And so I, many, many times I read the book and I was just kind of shaking my head going, oh gosh, this is just horrible and I can't even, I'm not even surprised. It's just, you know, sad because once again, people and power you know, it's a bad combination. Um, but if you are looking for um, a bit of a, an explanation of where we are and how we have ended up where we are currently, uh, I think that this is a great book to kind of set the foundation for that. So everyone, I hope that you enjoyed this bit here. Um, I will say that uh, I want to give a little hat tip to some pretty prominent voices in the church world who have been um, very brave in their honesty about things. And that'd be Russell Moore, Beth Moore, not related, um, both of the, of the SBC. Um, I don't know if they are still there, maybe not. Um, but I just want to say that, you know, we must continue to speak the truth to power, regardless of where that power might be.